0: My sense is that most of us in this room have had an experience whereby we show up, in the, we find ourselves rather in the middle of an experience uh, that is not so tasty or favorable and then lo and behold the situation reveals something to us that is nothing short of a blessing. Having this kind of equanimity. It's very helpful in our day-to-day, not knowing and being totally accepting of that not knowing, being totally accepting of the uncertainty of what any moment might bring and being very comfortable with that actually puts us on the path straight into uh, freedom. I was pushed into a a rather significantly awakened space this morning at around 5 a.m. By uh, a child some kid (laughs) and uh, while I wasn't sure what she was freaking out about because her English isn't very good yet uh, at eight months she was very clear eight months old she was very clear that something was not right and so I met the situation uh, by, of course, deferring to my wife who really knows how to deal with stuff like this. I, on the other hand, immediately go into fix-it mode. How can I keep this kid from screaming so loud? And she uh, very tenderly just kind of softened the experience uh, by singing to the child. I remember thinking, wow, that's so... Beautiful. Now, I happen to be married to this lady, so it's easy for me to say that, uh, I guess. But what then started to happen as she was seeing to this baby was uh, I, could <laughs> I could see the sun begin to rise over the Sierra Nevada and start to reflect off of the clouds and the surface of Lake Tahoe equally. And it was just one of those moments where, oh, oh yeah. There is grace in every moment. There is grace in every moment. We just have to be available to it. And uh, at the beginning of that experience, I was anything but available to it. What I was really available to or wanted to be available to was an extra hour of sleep. But instead, what kind of showed up was this opportunity to let this echo of the divine pass through me and uh, my family as I was experiencing it. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where you look at nature and find, okay, well, there's peace there. There's peace in nature, but there's not peace the minute I start getting into rush hour traffic around the uh, 680 split from Highway 24, trying to come home from San Francisco, let's say on a uh, you know, Friday evening. There's grace there too what nature offers us, or what those moments when we can see the sunrise reflected equally off of beautiful clouds and the surface of a gorgeous body of water, what we can begin to recognize is what that image or that invitation of beauty is basically just a reminder that grace is equally present in all situations. That the infinite shines its divinity on every single person, situation, disaster, blessing, all of it equally. Just like the sun shines on everything equally. There may be clouds kind of uh, filtering, filtering the, the sun's glory. But that doesn't mean it's not there. Just like there may be clouds in our life. But this does not mean that the grace of the infinite is not there. What clears those clouds? Well, sometimes it's someone saying the right thing at the right time. It's a passage in something that you're reading that just pops something within you just perfectly. Maybe it's the the kiss of someone you love or the courage to apologize to someone that part of you feels doesn't deserve an apology. Whatever it is, We're in a situation, right now, wherein we can begin to open to the all. We can begin to recognize the all, the infinite, whatever you want to call it. We can begin to let it in and let it through, especially as kind of a conscious surrender and stillness starts to pervade our experience. So as we sit tonight can you just allow? Can you just allow what is to be? Can you just know or can you intuit that you're being given an invitation right now to let go you're being given an invitation right now to recognize that resonant song, that the echo is happening, you just have to kind of tap into it and follow it, see where its source is. Once you do, all things begin to change their relationship within you and without you. Shall we sit? Some years ago, I was in an English class wherein this teacher, easily one of the the best teachers I've ever had in my life, maybe the most proper woman uh, you could imagine. If you could just think of a rather matronly, uh, incredibly (coughs) well-read woman who I'm convinced in her life never swore. she probably never did anything that was against some amazingly clean code that she lived by. Uh, we were talking about the Scarlet Letter. And how uh, anyone, any, any woman in uh, pre-colonial times who was wearing the Scarlet Letter A on her bodice, uh, you know, her outfit, the, the, the part of the, the outfit that was just covering her chest, had clearly known a man. And I remember sitting there going, excuse me? <laughs> so, she, so she knew some guy. <laughs> man, that must have been a really common letter. Uh, and uh, I, I absolutely, it, it made no sense to my uh, 13-year-old mind, 14-year-old mind. So I you know, I kind of asked her about it. I go, but you, you said, like, you know, she knew Hester Prynne had known Reverend Dimmesdale. I, what What is that? She goes, well, she slept with him. <laughs> and I went, because, <clears throat> I mean, I just couldn't handle it. It's like, you can't say that, you can't say <laughs> And then I realized, man, she was damned if she did and damned if she didn't. There was nothing she could have said that would have kept me from, you know, really kind of being shocked. Uh, by her response, but it was, it was this perfect, perfect teaching uh, in that knowing a man, in this sense, meant carrying one's intimacy into that fire of connectivity. Meaning if we know someone, some situation, some event, and we really, really know it, It's as if we have become truly intimate with it. Does this make sense? And so what tonight, uh, where I I really wanted to go with this this talk was to to discuss what it means to be all-knowing. Not that you are omnipotent and that you know everything, but that you are intimate with the all. Does this make sense? So just to set us up here. When I refer to all-knowing, I'm not referring to some ubiquitous sense of uh, uh, what is right and what is wrong. I'm instead referring to being really intimate with the infinite. That you've slept with the infinite. Okay? That was weird. Sorry. Anyway. (laughs) So what the situation seems to be for uh, uh, the, the vast majority of, of human beings is that we see ourselves as being apart from other things. Rather than connected to everything, we see ourselves as being apart. In fact, one of the great quotes uh, that, that really kind of set me off as I began my spiritual path was by uh, the esteemed you know Yazutani Roshi who uh, uh, said, the fundamental delusion of humanity is to suppose that I am in here and you are out there. That this boundary, or that there's a division between I and everything else. Where is that I? Where does it live? Somewhere behind our face, perhaps? Where is it? And then that exploration allows us to become truly intimate with what it means to be a self. What it means to be here in this body, in this time, with this mind. Anyway, we tend to have this delusion. We tend to work with uh, what Yasutani Roshi was talking about here. This I am in here while every, everyone else is out there. Or I'm in here and everything else is out there this includes seeing ourselves as being apart from the infinite most of us do most of us see ourselves as being apart from let's say god why else would anyone pray to god unless they felt separate from god i'm in here god is out there to assume that god is within me oh no 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 i can't do that that's a sin Well, maybe, but it's also a great way to keep you from realizing truth. To keep God-realization from ever happening. To keep enlightenment, if you will, at bay. And maybe this is why our practice, as opposed to praying, talking to, negotiating with, some external perception, we instead try to avail ourselves to whatever is. Answers tend to show up that way. but it also sets us indeed, in certain ways, apart. We are all part of the infinite. And in fact, while our core delusion might be that the I feels like it's in here while everything else seems to be out there, it seems as if the most important thing to any of us in this room and on the outside of this room is to somehow reconnect with that peace that the infinite always offers. So how do you do it? How do you reconnect with the all? How do you know the all? How do you become all-knowing? Well, first, I mentioned this a little bit earlier, is when we begin to live a life that is centered around presence, accountability, surrender, stillness. An all-knowing tendency begins to show up rather spontaneously. With surrender and stillness at our core, it begins to chip away at this boundary that the I feels. Okay? The boundary that sets it apart. And that I'm in here on this side of this wall this bunker, okay, I'm on this side of the wall and everything else is out there. All of these things begin to, this presence that we start building, this accountability that we start showing, the surrender and the stillness begin to literally take that wall down. I always have the image of uh, Pink Floyd, uh, you know, tear down the wall. Well, the wall doesn't need to be torn down. It'll fall of its own weight, given the opportunity, It doesn't want to stand. No wall does. Entropy prevails, given the chance. If we just quit maintaining the wall, it'll fall of its own weight. And this is essentially what what starts to happen. Uh, How do we do this or what is the practice? Well, it literally becomes a study of the small self or the ego or of this I that feels it's in here while everything else is out there. It's quite a simple practice. Now, it involves stillness. It involves sitting. Uh, It involves usually having sore knees or a sore back. It involves getting up a little bit earlier than you might want, or, you know, uh, whatever. You know, it, it is a practice, just like a sport. It takes discipline. It takes a little fire. It takes wanting it. But in doing this, <clears throat> what ends up happening is we begin to see how trivial this small self is. The I behind the wall begins to give way to the I that is the all. So, As we begin to explore this, as we begin to look at the boundary of the small self, as we begin to look at the very thing in us that tenses up, the very thing in us that wants to run away, the very thing in us that is not still, the very thing that moves, as we begin to study this, a shift occurs. As we get to the core of our smallness, What is revealed is our infinite expanse. And the reconnection with the infinite, the all-knowing, if you will, begins to show up as something we are totally familiar with. As opposed to something we've been longing for. As opposed to something that has always seemed so elusive, so far away, We begin to actually experience a shift in perspective that spontaneously carries us out of what is contracted in us and into and through something that allows for a tremendous expanse, an expanse that we can orient our lives around, through, and from daily in every moment because it's what's always available. We begin to accept. We begin to recognize. We begin to see through. Wisdom, or rather I should say, this wisdom of the all, of the infinite, begins to show us that we are nothing other than awakened space. Always. This can get really heady and I'm not trying to do that. I am just trying to push you into starting to explore what it means to be this I. This I that feels kind of behind a wall. This I that is dying to reconnect with the infinite. There's a real, I guess, simple way, I could put it, a simple practice that all of you guys could could play around with over the next, uh, you know, bit of time. So I'll share it with you. Uh, it's something that is utterly basic, uh, and yet it stymies individuals constantly. So let me just share it with you, and for those of you who have sat with me before, uh, even one time you have heard me say something similar. Actually, you've heard me say the same thing probably a hundred times, maybe a thousand. This is just another way of putting it, but the way we reconnect with the infinite is by recognizing that the infinite is never not here. It's never not here. The infinite is never not here. In Zen, we refer to it typically as emptiness. That always baffled me, especially as a young Zen student. I had emptiness. Help me with that one. What, what do you mean emptiness? And the, the pointing out was basically, well, what is at the core of who you are? Ah, uh, well, you know, I, it, for me, it was the absolute Cartesian response. I think, therefore I am. I got a mind, and it's, it's powerful and strong, and it's educated, so don't try to fool me. And the teacher rather dismissively said, okay, well, what's beyond your mind? you know and then immediately you know the the palsy kind of started kicking in you know I had no idea how to respond absolutely no idea how to respond and there was so much freedom in that emptiness in the Buddhist sense is no thingness nothingness and yet all things arise out of this no-thingness, this emptiness. It, emptiness is what gives birth to somethingness in all cases. Meaning that anything that arises, any thought, any feeling, any sense of self, any I, any situation the I is in, any them, any they, he, she, whatever, all of that comes from where? comes from emptiness. It comes from Nothing. And so when we start thinking of the all, we start looking at the all as not only a collection of all these little somethings running around, but also the emptiness from which they are all born. In other words, emptiness is paradoxically, instead of being void or empty of all things, it's totally full. There's nothing lacking. The infinite lacks nothing. And you are that. You are the infinite. When we start playing this out, um, words typically get in the way and it gets a little freaky Because then the natural question that arises is, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. Okay, so you're saying there's a simple practice is to recognize that the infinite includes all things and I'm part of the infinite, therefore I include all things. What? It gets weird. Well, how do we start playing with that aspect or rather that perspective on reality? Try recognizing number one, all of your thoughts come from emptiness any of you who have sat still any of you who have meditated for more than a little bit of time have recognized that thoughts arise and thoughts cease that your mind begins to engage and then there is peace yeah everyone can have that experience even those of you who have never ever, let's say this is your first time meditating and all you had were, you know, uh, 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 lumbar cramps, um, uh, a, a jittery, a jittery, you had too much caffeine, let's say, in, this, in the afternoon and your mind was doing this the whole time, try it in a chair next time, let's say, or on, on the floor and try a little less caffeine, you will find that there will be space that will open up between your thoughts and that spaciousness, that spaciousness actually is the all do the same with your feelings step one thoughts step two feelings look at your feelings not only how they arise physically in your body like my knee hurts or I'm having cramps in my spine as I sit. but how about your emotional life I am noticing amazing grief I am noticing fear, I am noticing desire, I am no- notice all of that stuff that starts going on within your body that shows up as a physical sensation. We begin to have an absolute relationship, in other words, with our minds when we start watching our thoughts and looking for that space between our thoughts. The same thing occurs when we start having an absolute relationship with our bodies where we start noticing the space between feelings or how feelings show up as intensity and intensity always shows up as a wave. We begin to become so in tune with what's going on internally, not only with our minds, but also with our bodies, that we start seeing the peace and space between and among all these little things that start arising and dancing out of nothingness. We start seeing that we are that nothingness as well as that somethingness. And we get to choose which one will play best on the field. The last one of course is looking at time. Having an absolute relationship to time. This practice allows us to see how much indeed of our time is spent in past, and how much of our experience is spent in future. If our experience is all about what has happened before, we tend to orient our entire experience around pain, victimization, past glory, all right, lost youth, Someone who is constantly oriented in what used to be is creating yet more bricks to put in the wall. Having an absolute relationship with that allows us to really look at that tendency in ourselves. And then we get to choose whether or not we put the brick in there or if we just let it go. Similarly, if you've noticed anyone whose time... uh, on this planet is is spent largely in what we might call future mind. They are bound by what might happen, what could happen, what should happen, what better happen, what damn well must happen. All right, you will find people who are incredibly stressed because they are not living in the present. They are living in some future mind-created reality that hasn't happened yet. And therefore, they are no longer here, but they're actually somewhere else. And this keeps the wall strong. Practice with that. Notice that there is space in between past and present. And it's the only time that's always, always here. It's now. if you have that all-knowing sense of mind, that all-knowing sense of feeling, that all-knowing sense of time, you are setting yourself up for expanse. And the concomitant with that expanse is that you connect with others from an inherently loving space. You start seeing that there is no longer this dualism between the eye that's in here and everything else. You start seeing a non-dualism. You actually start living as a non-dual force of nature which is simultaneously connected to this very space as a participant in the world and someone who is no longer caught by the world. You are able to dance as what is small and what is big. You are able to see this entire experience from the perspective of what it means to be a human being, to live in the suburbs, to drive, invariably, a Prius, and also to be way beyond that stuff. That you can begin to see yourself as the sunrise that reflects equally off the clouds and the surface of the lake. And that everything is available. That there is nothing holding you, quote-unquote, back. That you, in fact, are not only an extension, but an embodiment of the all, simultaneously one and many. Great. It's good to see you by the way.: yeah, I, I can't understand it, like how the term emptiness is also everything..: I, I can't get that clear. It's a mystery, isn't it? Yeah. How is emptiness and total fulfillment? Yeah. How could it possibly? Um, you're going to hate my answer. <laughs> it's <all right>. OK. <laughs> I want you to sit still every day for the next year. Okay. And what happens is that statement starts taking on a real deep and resonant clarity. It's kind of beyond words. We start seeing that opposites no longer really play themselves out as opposites, except when we're small. We start seeing from this, this perspective, this huge, this, out, this altitude that's way up there. It's like, for instance, if you and I were on the moon right now, and we were looking at the earth, would we be able to see the tragedy that's occurring? We might know it's there. But we wouldn't be able to see it as something that's relevant? It's something, nonetheless, that we want to participate in and make sure that we have our hand in being helpful. But it's it's not the same. Anytime I'm up in the Berkeley Hills and I'm looking out at that gorgeous view of San Francisco, I sometimes think, wow, what's going on over there? You know, it seems so contained in this view of mine, right? But it's where opposites tend to fall away. It just becomes this gorgeous silhouette against a glowing orange sky. So I really would encourage you to not get caught by the mystery but be open to the mystery and see what happens then report back okay in one year year, it might not take that long remember this day yes okay july 19th we're seeing you again. yeah thank you thank you for the question yeah So what's the point? Of what? Why are we here? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> what's the point? Well, yeah. I think I've probably asked you this before many times. Oh, I think that's actually a really good question. What's the point? Really? Yeah. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. I think it is. Really, it's a very natural, it's a very natural. Okay, so if you, ever, if you ever had this one come up uh, in your uh, awareness at all, why is there something at all? Why is there anything at all, you know? That's a very, very natural thing for, to, to come up as we begin to question what it is that we are experiencing. Uh, and I, did you ever see uh, The Power of 10? It, it's a short film by uh, Charles and Ray Eames. They did back and I guess it was, they, they redid it. They first did it in the 60s, and then they did it in about the mid 70s, where they, they go from a guy's hand, they're in Chicago, and they go from, they're just right in your soldier field, and the guy's laying down on the grass, and they go from his hand, and they start at one millimeter, and then they go times ten, they go to a centimeter, and then to a meter, and the, you get the idea, and they go out all the way into the ultra-deep field, what they call it. And the ultra-deep field, just so you know, is, is measured. This is kind of bizarre. Um, if you take your, your fingers, your thumb and, and forefinger, and you put them together to make a little square, hold them at arm's length up to the night sky. Within that tiny square, there are count, like literally countless billions of galaxies that we didn't know about prior to 1998. So it's so expansive, <laughs> you know, the Charles and Ray Eames film, it, it doesn't even do the infinite justice, okay? Uh, in seeing something like that, you begin to question your significance. What is the... Why the heck... Well, why is there something? The best answer I've ever heard to that question is because God does not want to have dinner alone. (laughs) That indeed, every one of us is enhanced through participation. What are we looking for? Connectivity. With what? Deep resident peace what does anybody drink what does anybody think about the human act of sexuality what is it about can i lose myself with you even if it's just for a second right and so what are why why does that occur i don't I have no clue i mean you could say well there's all this biological stuff going on, you know, procreation and so okay, great. But if you really think about it, we start turning a corner where we start not really caring why. We start caring that. And that doesn't diminish our inquisitiveness or our curiosity as we begin to like jump into this experience. Okay? We begin to question everything. Why am I here? Why doesn't this feel quite right? Why do I have these consistent thoughts of negativity? Why do... Right? What do we really want? Peace. And so I think if we are very, very comfortable in conflict, war, and resistance, negativity. If, on the other hand, you want to uncover this grace that has been talked about and talked about and talked about by you know, screwballs like me and everybody else for thousands of years. There's a curriculum. It's not very clear. The curriculum is, it doesn't, the homework is bizarre. It's do nothing, you know, I mean, (laughs) but really do nothing. Uh, But there's, there's some, something quite beautiful, an abiding beauty. That's available to everybody. How's that for a non-answer? Did I bullshit my way right around that one? <laughs> yeah, I hope so. Thank you. Seriously. Great question. <laughs> Anybody else? When I have water in my hand, I just I just point like that. Right. Yeah. Yes, Viley of the concept of time, um, I, um, I'm acutely aware when I'm meditating that I'm either in the past or the future. But as I was thinking about it and listening to you, um, I realized most of the day I am in the now when I'm working because I can't do my work and not be in the now. Mm-hmm. Are you a rock climber? Is that how you make yeah. your living? You're never thinking about the future. You're never thinking about what should or what has? Forgive, but let me, let me push you on this. Basically what you're saying is when I'm when I'm working exactly. You know, when I'm really um, I, mean,
1: I do you know, garden Exactly.
0: No, no, no. It's know. actually it's it's actually very but the it's reason it's it's really it's, it's not about Now, what do I need to do to make this thing? Yeah. What do I have to do to participate fully? That's marvelous. Okay? So isn't that being, and how can that be easy? And then when you sit to meditate, you're all over the place in terms of time. Right. Well, I'm not really sure what exactly is going on in your mind uh, while you're at work. Let's assume, for the sake of this discussion, that while you're at work, you are deeply, deeply in the present. But that while you meditate, you find that you're acutely aware of going backwards and forwards into past and future, and rarely in the now. Let's just assume that. If your work experience puts you into a flow state, okay, puts you into a flow state where you're not, if you will, addled by thoughts uh, or or feelings, or a sense of time, then you know it's possible to be that way all the time. If while you sit, you are finding that that's a near impossibility, what you're recognizing is that upon self-reflection, uh, a tendency towards running away happens you have some really cool work to do and that work is to instead of for most people which is to boy I find total stillness when I'm on my cushion and I'm in sitting in zazen or I'm, I'm meditating or whatever and what I want to be able to do is carry that into my work you have the opposite okay well, but but still, it's still. Which you're you're still getting a dose of it, okay? Now, if I'm going to get really technical with you about it, the experience of being absolutely present in something that requires doing or kinetic motion, okay, um, is a reminder, but it is not the same as something, some type of openness that is met in complete and total. Stillness of body and mind. Okay? So when we are absolutely still in body and mind, and it's not in the course of, like, I. Uh, but there are meditation practices that are moving, and people have often said, oh, you should be in that because you love to move. Oh, that's great, yeah. And since you love to move, the you will be reified, and that wall will bizarrely become a little thicker. Isn't that weird? So it's really valuable to actually push ourselves in the other direction. Not about what's gonna make you comfortable, but what's gonna allow you to become more deeply aware of what's not stand still. So here's my suggestion. Sit still. (laughs) Okay? All right? really hard for me to do. I'll bet. Good. Good. Because now you got a lot to practice with. And if you're frustrated, what do you do? You get really close to that frustration. You get intimate with that frustration. That frustration is occurring in the all, isn't it? Knowing the all means knowing that frustration. The more intimate you can become with that frustration, the less it can hold you. The more intimate you, come, you, you uh, uh, become with the desire for this not to be here, guess what? The less that desire can hold, right? So shining the light of your awareness into those dark nether regions of the self actually blows up the boundary between self and other. And what is in here and out there begins to merge consciously. That's what you have in store. (laughs) Yeah. Do you, like, at the end, as your head just goes on that pillow when everyone in your mind wakes up. I, I've always felt that sometimes the, the actual falling asleep is like the, the ultimate of letting go, and I have a lot of trouble. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure what the question, the question is exactly, is but. How- how do I understand what I'm holding on to in, the, you know, in, in consciousness and why do I fear that letting go? Because you know, as I let go, I, I, I resist it yeah. and I'm like, don't, don't, you know, and I hold on because I, I can't sleep. Right. But, um, so... Well, the reason why we hang on is because we're afraid that we're going to lose something. And what this practice shows you is that you have nothing, right? You don't, you, there's nothing you can hang on to, really, that can't be taken from you, except the awareness of the all. That all-knowing, right? That awareness, that naked awareness onto which everything projects itself, Onto that is always there. It has never moved. It has never not been there for you, even as a little kid, Your awareness was there, okay? And so what we do is we take that backward step into that awareness and we begin to get curious about the fact that we are gripping constantly, right? And in that curiosity, which is inherently open and indeed kind of joyful in a weird way, what happens? Our stress level diminishes. You're gonna be afraid in all cases of something potentially happening, right? And when we begin to let go of those stories, well, yeah, shit's going to happen, no doubt. But at this point, I'm trying to get to sleep, and my mind is messing with me so that it can somehow, you know, stay lift and wait, you know, stay in charge, you know, type of thing. And instead, what begins to happen is that that which is beyond the mind begins to say, hey, give it a rest so she can, Right? Having curiosity about that is really helpful. Being analytical about it, you know. Oh, well this came from my childhood would my mother never kissed me or whatever. That basically, and that can be helpful, but it doesn't solve much. What ends up solving non-surrender is surrender, is letting go, and what meditation does is it helps us let go in incremental bits again and again, and again, and again, until it becomes something that we are. We are surrender. We are open. And sleep and wakefulness become just simple rhythms of our day. So it's a really cool experiment. Kind of like I was, uh, I was saying with Filey. You know, it's a really, it's a really, just a, uh, peace is your birthright. It's what you came from, right? It's what you're going to die into. All of us. All of us. Now, we had stuff in between, that whole middle part. <laughs> you know, you're born, you're born naked, cold, alone, and it just gets worse from there, you know, until you croak at the end. And then it's like, ah, right? Well, what if that ah happens before croak time? and that's really what we're doing here Um, and systematically practicing again and again with that release with that curiosity about the clinging curiosity about the clinging tends to relax that hand if you will and so I'm going to totally recommend that you begin practicing having that all knowing relationship with your thoughts be right there for them huh wow huh as opposed to, no, right? That shift in attitude, which is something you can do very, very consciously, you know, that shift in attitude can do wonders, not only for your sleep, but for your wakefulness. And report back, please, within one year. (laughs) I'll see you next July at least, okay? (laughs) Yes? Yes? It's actually a Sufi saying, I think. Yeah. And, and then uh, where, where do we, where does this, end? Emp- so this emptiness is there always, then we pass away, or our bodies pass away, and then, and anyway. what? Who cares? Ah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I don't remember my past lives. I don't really care if I had any. Um... I think that that's the greatest egoic trap, one of the greatest egoic traps of any spiritual practice is for anybody to be doing this so that they can do it again in the next life. We don't know if there's another next life, okay? And it's exactly what the ego would love to do. Well, if I get it wrong now, I can do it again later, right, 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 you know? And then what do we do? We can't sleep, you know? We're hanging on on totally. Right. And so that's why I always say this is not a freaking dress rehearsal. Play hard now. Every one of us is going to die. Every one of us in this room. Probably sooner than we expect or think or would like. Although that may not be the case. Probably will happen. What, this, what deep, authentic spiritual work, regardless of tradition, tends to help us do is meet that experience of surrender prior to it being forced on us by the universe crashing through our bodily form. Yeah? Yeah. And so uh, that's why, I mean, uh, (laughs) we call it a practice because it's an option. Why not? Why do we do this? Why not? You know? And just see where it takes. This isn't for everybody, I totally, and I'm not for everybody. The Sangha, I'm sure, is not for everybody. I mean, but that becomes totally superfluous and beside the point. Ultimately, we've, we've got a finite amount of time. We don't know when we're gonna die. So the question is, how then are we going to live well? How can we touch lives? How can we, right? I don't know. That die before you die? Well, you die before you die whenever you begin to really give of yourself totally to all beings, including yourself. When we begin to do that, we begin to lose this boundary between self and other. And when we lose that boundary between self and other, there is an all-knowing of experience. And then we get to walk through the world a little differently. Thanks for coming. Appreciate it.